I would say people are feeling more more confident. Uh, I would say compared to where they were a few months ago, uh, partly because there's a feeling that interest rates have peaked and that at some point in the next several months, they'll start coming down. As you know, the big debate is to come down now or next July. But so I feel that in general, people are more confident. I think that's reflected in the stock market and stock prices. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. There is so much in the news these days about energy, oil, natural gas, the green transition, electric vehicles, the geopolitical impact of what's happening with wars right now happening in the Europe and Middle East, and what does that mean for energy markets. And energy markets have a big impact on how much people can spend, right? What is that inflationary impact on the final wallet spend that people have? And what does that mean for the Fed? What does that mean for stock and bond markets? It's all interrelated. So today we're talking to the world's preeminent expert on the energy industry and the interrelations between countries and companies and geopolitics. I'm really pleased to be joined by Daniel Jurgen. Dan, thanks so much for being on the show with me. I, I, your bio, your bio is impressive, right? You wrote the prize, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book called the Prize. It was the history of oil. Your latest book from a couple years ago is the New Map, and in it you said, "If you're going to look for a hot spot in the world, look at Ukraine." That's exactly what happened. You were you were very prescient in in your analysis of what's happening, and you're the vice chairman of S and P Global. You know the acquiring company of what you started with Cambridge Energy Research Associates many years ago that became, I guess it was IHS Market, now it's S&P Global. So you've seen it all. I feel like you know everybody, right? You've met Putin, you've met every CEO of an oil company, you've met every every person that matters in the energy industry, you've met them, you know them. So I really appreciate you taking time to spend with us today. Well, thank you, Eric. I'm very glad to be with you. And uh, thank you for that very gracious welcome. What is the biggest concern right now? Is it the Israel-Gaza war or is it the Ukraine-Russia war or is there some other third issue? Is it the Venezuela-Guyana thing that all of a sudden has happened in the last few days? When you're talking to the people that make policy around the world or invest, you know, the, the executives, the Exxon types, the Chevron types, and they're figuring out where to put their money, what are they most worried about at the moment today? I think you could summarize it all in one, two, one phrase, which is geopolitical risk. And all of those things you've mentioned fall under them. Uh, you know, business likes predictability. Business likes to be able to make investments and know how they're going to turn out. But uh, geopolitics seems to just be dominating the conversations right now. And for good reason. Has it gotten worse? Because when, when you write the prize, you write the new map, we've had geopolitical issues from day one, right? It's, right. This is a, humi a human thing. It doesn't go away. But is it all of a sudden in this decade, worse now than it was in the 70s, 80s, or 90s? Well, I think it's changed. It is true that um, I remember in the prize, somebody said in the 1930s in Europe, oil was a 90% of oil was politics. But I think what's happened, and this is what I really focused on, one of the things in the, in the new map, is that we've had this era of globalization, which was about 30 years. Uh, started with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then later with China entering the World Trade Organization, what I call the WTO, the World Trade Organization consensus, the globalization consensus. And you had conflicts and everything, but the sense was that all these countries were benefiting. And that era is now over. And we're in an era where suddenly 
supply chains, which used to be something that just supply chain managers worried about, now boards of directors worried about. So we've gone from that era uh, in which the leadership of the U.S. was pretty assured to one of great power competition between the U.S. and uh, China. And this kind of now Russia has really become a dependency of China. Really, you, so you would describe Russia as a dependency of China in the same way we think of North Korea as a dependency of China or the way that we thought of Cuba was a dependency of Russia. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, because it's when the Cold War ended uh, the, and the Soviet Union disappeared, the real drive was to integrate, have Russia, which has nuclear weapons, a lot of nuclear weapons, integrate it into the global economy, the global political system. Its economy increasingly integrated with Europe. But Putin, you know, Putin made that, I mean, he was already going in another direction, but when he made his decision to invade Ukraine, uh, he overturned that bargain, that relationship. The door to Europe is slammed shut, uh, which is Russia's natural market. And so Russia really is now very important to China in its competition with the United States. But for Russia, its real economic future is with China. And, you know, people will say in the stores, Western goods have disappeared from the shelves in, in Russia, and they're replaced by Chinese goods. You know, all this integration, right? That's It's been such a controversial topic over the last several decades. Will bad actors behave better if they're integrated, or do bad actors now have more leverage on you because you've integrated with them? Is Would we have been better off, let's say from an American point of view, would we have been better off never integrating with Russia, never integrating with China and saying, you're on your own and, and we can do this without you. Well, I think with Russia, we really had no choice because of the nuclear weapons. And, and so, and it made sense. And it seemed for a couple of decades that that was what was happening. And that, you know, Russians, you know, had broken out of the, uh, be outside the Iron Curtain and they were integrated into the global community. Uh, you had Russians studying in the United States, Americans studying in Russia, uh, growing commerce. But sign of the times is like the U.S.-Russian Business Council, which promoted Western companies, U.S. companies in Russia, has now closed down. So, and with China, I think what was not understood was how integrated our economies had become in so many ways that people don't think about. I mean, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this and watching this show probably take a vitamin C pill or have in their multivitamin their vitamin C. Highly likelihood that what's called the... Um, uh, active pharmaceutical ingredient of vitamin C, uh, that comes from China. So there's so many ways we're connected and so many ways they're connected, but we are going through a period of at least of fragmenting globalization. And uh, we're finding out it's difficult because we're, we're more connected than we thought we were. Difficult is, is quite an understatement yeah. <laughs> when you put it that way. What what are the conversations that you're having these days? So geopolitical risk seems to be the number one issue. What else are the topics when you're talking to either heads of state, policymakers in different countries, or energy executives? Other than geopolitical risk, what are they focused on? What are they worried about? Well, I think they're worried about domestic political risks. They're worried that the bargain that they made uh, for, um, you know, to make an investment that the government changes or policy changes I find that both around the world and, of course, in the United States, people are very interested in understanding the ramifications of the Inflation uh, Reduction Act. Indeed, I'm doing a presentation next year, next next week, not next year, soon it'll be next year, next week to a company on that, because the U.S., which used to tell other countries don't have industrial policy, 
now has what's called industrial policy, i.e. very direct investment and, and involvement in the economy in a way that we didn't in the past. And we're talking not about hundreds of billions of dollars, but potentially trillions of dollars. And so there's there are risks there, but there are a lot of uh, incentives for companies to figure out if they invest in the right thing. So we, so I think I find around the world, people are very interested in understanding these policies that have come out of the Biden administration. And, and this maybe this is crazy topic, but you mentioned the Biden administration, the policy they put in place, very different than what we saw in the Trump administration. And you know, Jared Kushner has got this book out now, and and he talks about, look, if, if we were still in charge, if the Trump administration was still in charge, we wouldn't have had these wars. There would not be Israel and Gaza. There would not have been Russia and Ukraine because we had a better handle on what was happening because we understood these dynamics better. Do you agree with that statement, with that sentiment? Well, I think, um, I don't know, I'd have to think about that. that what the Trump administration did get done was the, the Abraham Accords, which uh, was diplomatic relations between uh, the United Arab Emirates and Israel and a couple of other uh, key Arab uh, countries. Uh, that momentum was continuing because it looked until uh, the Gaza war began, uh, until Hamas invaded Israel, that, uh, that Israel and Saudi Arabia would have diplomatic relations, which would be a huge turnaround. Uh, but in some ways, there's also been continuity. A lot of the policies and tariffs and so forth related to China that were introduced by the Trump administration have continued. So I think the one thing, if you're here in Washington where I am, you'll find that not, there's not a lot that unites Democrats and Republicans, but one thing that certainly does is this kind of uh, sense that China is uh, uh, a competitor or an adversary. And uh, that affects the policies. And there's, that's where you have some continuity from one administration to another. How do they deal with China? Because we do so much business with them, but then we treat them so so poorly in a way, in the sense of we don't trust them. That's a bipartisan agreement of they're the bad guys, but we still do business with them. But we're not sure if we should ban TikTok. You know, we're not sure how to deal with them. And we want this energy transition, but they control all the minerals if we're going to switch over to all electric vehicles. We actually are better off in a world where we control oil-based, fossil fuel-based resources. But when you start start switching to electric vehicles, it's going to be all now Chinese dependence. Yeah. How, how do they deal with this? this well, you know, there, there are a couple of different uh, parts of your, your question. First, that issue of trust is very basic. And I think for a couple of decades, there was trust that the U.S. and China were, were both part of the same game of, of, of a global economy and benefiting from it. And certainly there's high distrust in the, the United States. Uh, concerned about China's continuing military growth, concerned about the South China Sea, which I write about in the new map. People focus on Taiwan, but you got to keep in mind the South China Sea, which China claims is its own, and about a third of world trade passes through it. But I was just uh, yesterday uh, in contact with a colleague who was coming back from China, and he said, Chinese had said to him, very similar thing, that we don't trust the United States anymore. So it's a that's a two-way street. And a lot of effort is made in, here in the U.S. trying to figure out what are Xi Jinping's intentions? What does he intend to do? Uh, but I think uh, then you raise the question of minerals. And it's true that if, you know, to move to this world of what's called net zero reducing emissions means uh, creating new supply chains. And it's, it, it means, I mean, the phrase I use in the new map is you move from big oil to big shovels because you're going to need a lot of mining. 
And China has a predominant position in mining around the world and a very predominant position in processing those minerals, sometimes 70 or 80%. About 80% of the solar panels come from China. Maybe 80% of the lithium ion batteries for electric cars come from China right now. And that's one of the things that the Inflation Reduction Act it, it intends to, uh, uh, to, to change. But then the third part of what you said really goes to where the U.S. is predominant, which, you know, not so many years ago, the U.S. was the largest importer of oil in the world. Now it's the largest producer of oil in the world. It's a major exporter of oil in the world. The U.S. was going to import lots of natural gas in the form of what's called LNG, liquefied natural gas. Now the U.S. is the largest exporter of natural gas. So the U.S. has a very, you know, it produces a lot more oil than Saudi Arabia or Russia. So in that sense, um, I, I think that third part of your, you know, your observation is very important is that this is where the U.S. is strong and China isn't. It imports 75 percent of its oil and half of its oil comes through the Strait of Hormuz. We don't depend upon the Strait of Hormuz, which is that, that passageway from the Persian Gulf uh, to the Indian Ocean. So, so why are we doing this? Why, why as a country are we forcing ourselves to do an energy transition that hurts our self-reliance, our self-dependence, independence, and, and puts us more you know, in desperate need of what China has to offer? Why do we do that? As well, a, as a well it's obviously it's the climate agenda that, that drives it. And uh, you know, Trump backed away from the climate agenda. You know, when, when Biden came in, the first thing he did was establish that we're going to rejoin the climate uh, agreement. Uh, and there was just this huge conference in uh, Dubai uh, for uh, what's called COP28, which is a UN climate conference. 100,000 people showed up for it. Uh, so uh, it's basically on climate. Uh, is The other factor, though, is also competing with China, trying to bring certain kind of manufacturing back to the United States, particularly concerned about semiconductors, not only from China, but from Taiwan, where we're highly dependent. And so that's some of this big industrial policy, like the CHIPS Act to, to fabricate uh, uh, computer chips in the United States, because that business was being done overseas because it was cheaper and they had scale. I know, you know, I, I, I told you before and I said, I'm not going to ask you investment questions or investment ideas, but do you look at certain areas, certain countries or sectors and see opportunity, right? Obviously working at S&P Global, a lot of it goes back to, okay, what's the data say or what, where are opportunities? So I don't mean to say, give me a stock or give me a pick, but are there certain areas where you feel you're optimistic that this nation gets it or this industry is going to figure things out that if you had to just pick a sort of a big picture macro trend, where, where do you see more positivity? Well, I think uh, three years ago, everybody should put all their money into uh, uh, artificial intelligence, AI. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you, uh, I mean, again, I'm not an investment advisor, a stock picker, but, you know, look at where all the strength is in, in the, you know, in fact, in the S&P, which is one of the indices that uh, our company does. But, uh, but you know, these things go in cycle. Uh, uh, oil and was very out of favor, and then it came back in favor, uh, uh, and then it, you know, it, it, it's a cyclical industry. So, um, you know, I have to think, you know, probably Eric would need to give some thought to what industries ultimately are not cyclical, because as the famous saying goes, trees don't grow to heaven. But, you, you know, right now everybody's crowding into tech. I think just so much depends on, uh, 
actually what happens to the economy. And the general sense, you know, if we pick today's date, is that, you know, people say, oh, it's going to be a soft landing, inflation's coming down faster. But some of the banks and some of the analysts still think they see a recession uh, in the second half of the year. So uh, I'm just struck by, you know, forecasting, you know, that famous uh, phrase attributed to Yogi Bear. I don't know if it's true, but to him, but avoid prophecy, especially about the future. And it certainly holds true. At the beginning of uh, 2023, people thought U.S. oil production, you know, would grow, but at a very low level. It, and I know we came out with a number that said higher. People said, oh, you're off consensus. And it turned out uh, to be even higher than that. And so, you know, look at how people miss their inflation forecast going up and apparently now going down. The forecasts are never right. Right. It's, it's, I remember one year, this was probably around the 07, 08, 09 blow up. And there was some survey at the end of the year of investment professionals. And they said, okay, what do you think the market's going to be? You know, like that's class and P 500. What do you think it'll be for the next year? And they give these, you know, five choices, A through E. And I think the choices were, you know, like, you know, net, you know, negative 5% to negative 10 or zero to negative five and zero to plus five, five to 10, 10 to 50, like, like these little narrow gaps. Right. And I think that year was like negative 40, something, right. it was just not even in the, the range of choices. So you're right about the, the forecast. We've had people come on the show. Some really see a hard landing ahead. They don't believe the soft landing at all. They don't believe the forecast. They, they look at a lot of things that are starting to break down. I'm curious when, let's say you talk to a CEO who has to decide, are we going to invest more in energy? Are we going to do a big capital spend, big infrastructure project? They're looking at inflation. They're looking at growth. They're looking at demands. They're looking at jobs. But their decisions are also going to affect what happens, right? If every company pulls back and says, we're not going to invest, that itself could create a recession or a hard leaning. Right. So what, what are you seeing in those conversations? Do they feel optimistic or do they feel pessimistic because they don't trust the data? I think I would say people are feeling more more confident. Uh, I would say compared to where they were a few months ago, uh, partly because there's a feeling that interest rates have peaked, and that at some point in the next several months they'll start coming down. As you know, the big debate is to come down now or next July. But so I feel that in general people are more confident. And I think that's reflected in the stock market and stock prices as well. Walk me through how interest rates affect the energy industry in terms of when we're at 5% rather than you know 0%, what does that do for the likelihood of new projects being built, growth from the company? Well, where it's really, what it's really hit is renewable energy. And okay. it's really hit things like offshore wind, uh, where you see all these projects that were going to be built along the East Coast uh, huge multi-billion dollar projects being postponed, delayed, maybe even canceled because uh, these capital intensive uh, projects, they're afflicted by high interest rates, uh, they're afflicted by inflation, and they're afflicted by supply chain problems. So, you know, if you look at the stock of, uh, you know, an offshore wind company, it really went up and then it's gone down considerably. And headlines, you see headlines in the Financial Times crisis in offshore wind. Uh, so they have, uh, I'd say a lot of renewable projects have been very affected negatively by high interest rates. Um, so, uh, and then the question, you know, I, you know, whenever you, very often when you go on a 
business television. The last question is, tell me about oil prices, what, what's going to happen to them. And my answer is, well, tell me what's going to happen to GDP, because that will really affect it. Right now, what we see is an imbalance in the market in the sense while demand is growing, growing, what's really been the surprise is called the strength of the Western Hemisphere, which is oil production growing in the United States by a lot this year. U.S. by far and away the biggest oil producer in the world, Canada, Brazil, and Guyana, small country on the northern coast of South America, where uh, big oil development is coming. And so basically, right now, supply is outdistancing demand, and that's reflected in uh, the oil price being down a lot. I mean, one of the things that really struck me when um, Hamas invaded Israel and launched the war, normally you have a war in the Middle East and oil prices go up this case, they went down. And I think although it's not well recognized, the growth of shale oil in the United States has been a real stabilizer to the oil market, uh, it, avoiding the kind of panic that you would have in uncertainty. And similarly, you know, the story that's less well known even than oil is natural gas, again, what we call liquefied natural gas. The US only started exporting in 2016. It's now the world's largest exporter. 40% of Europe's LNG imports come from the United States. So Putin probably would have gotten his way uh, in using the gas weapon because he cut off natural gas supplies to Europe in order to shatter the coalition supporting Ukraine. But what he didn't count on was this LNG, including a lot of it from the United States, would come in and replace Russian gas. So it, it, it shows the geopolitical impact of the oil and gas development in the United States, which a lot of people in this country don't recognize. But when I go to other countries, they sure do recognize it and they're grateful for it. Yeah, it's like we don't even realize, the average American doesn't even realize the strengths that we have here with what's what's the resources here. We're in December, the winter's coming. It's gonna be another cold, winter's cold, right? Like that's the definition right. of winter. We saw Europe struggle a little bit with it, but they got through it in terms of, okay, you don't have the same energy resources from Russia. The war is still continuing. It'll continue through this winter. What do you foresee in terms of heating oil, natural gas? And what do you see in terms of them being able to stay warm? It's natural gas in Europe. I mean, it was, it was tough for Europe. I mean, prices really did go up and it was even tougher for developing countries which were not able to get LNG because that LNG was going to fill the gap in Russia. So, you know, if, if you're in Europe and Germany, they worry about being deindustrialized because of uh, the cost of energy. Their cost of energy are much higher, including their cost of electricity are much higher than the United States because of, you know, the, the way they've structured things around renewable energy and, and driving, you know, they shut down, Germany shut down its nuclear power, which was 20, 25% of its uh, electricity. Uh, on environmental grounds. Um, so I think that, you know, I think, um, I mean, Europe is in a better position this year than it was last year because it built up stocks, supplies of gas in storage. But you know what? People are going to still be looking at the, at the thermometer very carefully. It's going to be a lot easier if it's a mild winter. If it's a cold winter, it will still be challenging. You mentioned Germany shutting down their nuclear plants, right? climate agenda, we're, we're going to move in this direction, but now our electricity prices are, are higher than, than they would have been. We don't have as much energy. Are you afraid of those types of mistakes happening in America because a certain group of people get their way and all of a sudden we're just voluntarily turning off 
power that, that we had, that we had no problem being able to deliver. I think that's a very real concern uh, that um, that our, our electric supply system will be tighter. We won't have the transmission. Uh, I was with a group of electric power executives uh, a couple of months ago. It was really striking to me in the past. They're always focused on demand for electricity going down because we're going to have more efficient refrigerators uh, 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 and you know different policies. Now they're seeing demand's going to go up because of electric uh, vehicles, EVs, and going to go up because of uh, uh, all the electricity demands for artificial intelligence, computing power, server farms for computers. And they're now sort of focused on, well, how do we meet that demand? Where do we grow it? Uh, particularly if this problem we have in the United States, which is you can't get permits to get things done. You can't get permits to build things, whether you're talking about a natural gas pipeline, whether you're talking about a new mine, so you're not as dependent on the Chinese supply system and the foreign sources or transmission lines. And, you know, we have this thing in the United States called the interstate highway system, which President Eisenhower did in 1956 launched. I don't think you could build it today because you wouldn't be able to get the permits. You'd be in court. In fact, I was talking to an executive of one of the big renewable wind developers in the United States, and he was saying, you know, I think we've been trying to get a project approved since 2007. He said, I think we should hire as our staff now people who are in the eighth grade because by the time they finish their careers, we'll finally have these things approved. So that is, you know, I guess if you go back to what are, business executives worried about, they're worried about the effectiveness of government, of, of the machinery of government working properly. And we see that in Washington too. Is that is that one party or the other that's that's causing more of the problem on these permits or is it everybody? Well, I think it's every, everybody because it's across the spectrum. Obviously, some part, you know, there are not a lot of Democrats who are in favor of natural gas pipelines. There are a lot of Republicans, but it's because there's the permitting process is so complicated. You have so many different agencies involved. And then even if you get a permit, you have another seven years of litigation that goes on to this federal appeals court and that federal appeals court. It's talking to a woman who's in charge of a major mining project in, in the West, and they keep waiting to hear from, I think it's the Ninth Circuit on, on a case, uh, which is the court out in, in, in the far West. And they just keep waiting. And you know everything takes longer. You know, one of the things about the Inflation Reduction Act and in general is that, well, we need more mines. It takes, if everything goes well, it takes about 20 years to bring a new mine on. Uh, you know, so if you started, uh, if uh, Eric Mining Company decided to spend a billion dollars on a mine this year, or let's say 2024, by 2044, you might have it ready to produce something. So a lot of political cycles you would go through. It's a good point about hiring eighth graders. It, it's yeah. and and these you're right. These time frames are now measured in like 15, 20 years plus. So you wonder, well, who's even going to have the patience, have the capital to do this? Right? Is this a massive? You know, I have a friend that works at uh, Blackstone, and he and he works on their energy business, and they're doing these deals, and these deals take 15, 20 years. So in order to get a profit on this, right, to even get one dollar back of revenue. Who even has the the length of time ability in terms of patience and capital and effort to get these done? Very few and far between. You, you well, I do think this. so. I mean, you do have these energy transition funds, which have raised a lot of money, but then you get into permitting. And it also will turn out that 
you know, I saw some number that over 600 localities in the U.S. have voted against having, they don't want a wind turbine farm there. So uh, that's why offshore wind looks so attractive, except it turns out to be a lot more expensive than, than you thought. So it does take patience. And, you know, I was today, this morning, I was talking with an executive from a mining company that has a, you know, had uh, uh, all their contracts, permits with the government uh, to develop a new mine. Then the government changed and they took the permits back, you know, and they've spent, you know, three or four years and a lot of money just trying to prepare to get ready to to do that, just to apply for uh, a permit to getting your permits to do a LNG export facility. Just getting that done can cost you $100 million. When, when you think about all this, it suggests that prices will keep going up because demand will go up, but supply is not going to go up. Right? Is that just a fair basic assumption well, of how difficult well, supply is? Well, I think short term, we've seen prices down uh, because of demand being weaker than thought and you know commodity prices like copper is the metal electrification and a lot of this energy transition is about electrifying everything uh, but uh, demand is down partly because demand is down in china so i think longer term if you're going to to get these goals the climate goals that are out there we we did a study at s p that said you'd have to double copper production by the middle 2030s but then that gets back to it takes 20 years to develop a mine. So I think there's some crunch points coming. We're not seeing them now because demand is weaker than the thought and the supply is there. But you get down, if you get back into a period of strong growth, that's when you'll start to see the pressures. And, uh, and that's when you'll start to see spiking going up and feeding into inflation again. And you're right, it's not U.S. demand. It's global demand. It's Chinese yes. demand. These, these commodities move on global demand, not domestic. Exactly. And China, I mean... You know, half the world's copper was being absorbed in China because you have 20 million people every year moving from the countryside to the city. And that all took a lot of copper to do that. So, yeah, we do have to remember the commodity markets. The U.S. is only a part of it. And that um, while the U.S. is a very large economy, uh, there's the rest of the world as as well. You. You talk about something that when the permitting process, it reminds me of a conversation I've had, a few conversations I've had where people talk about Europe is like a museum now. They don't want innovation. They don't want change. They want everything to be the same. Are we getting to that point in America? This was a European who said all great innovators have to leave Europe to come to America. It's the only place you can innovate. But when you say it takes decades to get a mine up, you know, are we turning into a museum here too? I don't think so yet. I think the permitting is a big problem, but I certainly see you know, European companies that, you know, resource companies that were looking to Russia are now saying they're refocusing their business on the United States. And in fact, you know, whatever you're, you know, whether you're left or right, if you're a company and you see the kind of incentives the U.S. government is getting, if you can get through the process and get them, it makes it attractive to come here uh, and invest. So I think, in fact, you know, I think they're, you know, when I'm in Europe, I certainly hear people talk about deindustrialization. And, uh, and, and China is not the attractive place to invest that it was five years ago. People are kind of backing out of China and either trying to shift their supply chains to Vietnam or India. But I think um, in a world, you know, the U.S. compared to a lot of other places, is still a much more attractive place to invest. And it's still much more hospitable to innovators uh, and uh, risk takers than Europe. So I think it is 
you know, Europe does have that problem about uh, about being stagnant. And one of the investment advisors that we interviewed recently, they said, you know, I'm I'm out of China and I'm out of Europe, right? Like I can I can do a lot of investing in in the United States and Japan and other countries, but but Europe and China for a lot of the reasons that you said. I, I think that's that. so true. And I was in a meeting. Uh, listening to an investment committee of a, of a foundation talking. And the big thing they were talking about is how do we get out of our investments in China? So, and Xi Jinping, you know, who's been pretty aggressive towards the United States, the president of China, he came to the APEC meeting in San Francisco, the big Pacific meeting where, Biden, where he met Biden, but he made a point to have dinner with all those CEOs because he's trying to say, uh, China's open for business. But I think the general predilection is exactly what that guy said. You got to reduce your exposure to China even though it's a growth market and it's 1.4 billion people. In Europe, if you're looking, it's just, if it's hard to do business in some ways in the United States, it's harder uh, in Europe. Yeah, that's, I guess that's the selling point for the US, right? It's like, oh, you think this is hard? Try somebody else, right? Yeah. What What's going on in Guyana right now? Venezuela, Guyana, this feels like it's, you know, if you're not paying attention, it feels like something has just happened, right? Oh, they're are they taking over? Or are they not? a very fresh story, but I'm sure for someone like you, this has been bubbling up for a while or anyone who's in the know, they've been paying attention to this. Well, Guyana, just to help our viewers and listeners know, is that, as I mentioned before, is a small country on the northern coast of South America. And nobody, most nobody thought there was oil there, but Exxon and, uh, and Hess Energy discovered what turned out to be significant resources. And so it's being developed very fast. And it's very attractive and it's considered stable, except next door you have Venezuela, which has ruined its economy, uh, is basically a, con a colony of China, uh, not of China, of Cuba, and very close relations with Russia and Iran. And President Maduro, so-called president, he's a dictator, suddenly you know, announces we're going to have a uh, referendum uh, that two-thirds of Guyana, including its offshore, belong to Venezuela, going back to a boundary dispute that was settled in 1899, 1899. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, it was just out of, it's it kind of come out of the blue and it's thought he's doing it for domestic reasons because uh, his economy is terrible. And as much as they've imprisoned the opposition, there is an opposition. But I think, and it hasn't been really remarked, uh, Venezuela has close relations with Iran and with Russia. And frankly, you know, we see uh, Iranian-linked militia in Iraq and Syria firing on uh, U.S. troops. A week ago, it was up to 70 different times. Uh, you know, oil prices are low. The U.S. is stretched thin. Why not create another crisis uh, on the, you know, uh, in, in the Caribbean? And so I... You know, it's very. Um, I, I, I'm not convinced that this is just coming from Venezuela. I think it's kind of well timed, given other things that are happening in the world. And people have said it's just you know rhetoric, but you know he may do uh, he may do something reckless. And the U.S. has increased its overflights over Guyana and affirmed its commitment to it. So it may seem most people have never heard of Guyana, but. Uh, but I think it's a very important new element in the global energy scene and it's Western hemisphere. And so it should be secure, except your neighbor 
is this dictatorship and this dictator who's ruined the economy of what was once Venezuela was once the richest country in Latin America. Does all this to you look like a World War III that is starting, right? You got the Ukraine, Russia, Israel, Hamas, Venezuela, they, they all have ties to Iran. Like it's all the same countries at well, the core. I, of I, I don't want to say anything inflammatory. I, you know, it's funny because a U.S. military person asked me the same question about a week ago. I mean, it is, um, I think we do have to be very careful in this period. And in particular, um, you know, in, you know, I think Maduro doing what he's doing in uh, Guyana is, it's a Putin playbook. I don't like the settlement that was once made. I'm going to change it. But I think we do, managing relationship with China is certainly the number one geopolitical task for the United States in this century. Uh, particularly as the term that now gets applied to China, that it's a, a near competitor or a peer competitor. Uh, so I wouldn't go as far as their statement said, but um, you know, one of the things I tried to point out in the new map, I mean, there are two things to call people's attention to. One is, well, there are many things, but one is the degree to which we don't want to find ourselves in a pre-World War I situation and two, I really want people to look at it and read it, the sections on energy transition to realize that this thing called the energy transition that people are talking about and implementing now is totally different from any energy and transition that we've had before. So I think, um, you know, I think those are two of the big takeaways. And, you know, even Henry, late Henry Kissinger, you know, sort of talked about analogies to pre-World War One right now. But then, of course, I remember, and I think I quote him in the new map, he said, uh, but analogies are imperfect. But I think we are, we, we have to be careful. But you know what? The Chinese have to be careful too. I like the way you, you put it. We'll, we'll leave it there. That's, that's a good, ominous way of leaving it. They have to be careful too. Dan Jurgen. so of course, the book, the most recent one is the new map. I loved it. People should definitely read it because it's everything that's happening right now. You you spell it out, and geez, the prize is so key. If you want to figure out how we got to this point over the last hundred and fifty years with oil and shattered peace, was that the name of the original yeah, book? Did yeah, I that, that was right? yeah, that was on the origins of the Cold War, and I the breakdown, right? The breakdown of what yeah, happened after the, yeah, with the Berlin and, Wall and everything. And the funny thing, when I was writing the new map, I started to think I, I never thought I would be writing another book about the origins of the Cold War, but that's a new Cold War, but that's kind of how I started to feel as I was re writing the new map. But let me emphasize one thing. I'm an optimist. It's like somebody said recently, things have been worse than they are now and they always got better. So for as bad as people think something is today, like things have been worse and they yeah. got better and we're not and, even that bad. Right, and one final thing to say, markets are always interesting and they're always changing. Right. 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 No, if you, it's like you're right. If you write books long enough, all of a sudden you start writing about the next Cold War, right? Right. And, and I never, as I said, I never expected, you know, I had all my old archives from the first book and I thought, well, wait, this is beginning to sound familiar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. You, you, the first book to the most recent, it's like, oh, now we're repeating themes. Uh, yeah. Dan, this is so good. Thank you for spending time with me today. I know you're waiting for that water cooler to arrive and it did not come during our interview. So that, right. that worked out really well. Right. Anyone? Yeah. So, so please find the new map by Daniel Jurgen. It's, it's a great read. It'll be very informative. It certainly was for me as well. And, and thank you all for watching, for listening, for checking this out. If you like this episode, please 
like it, share it, subscribe to the channels, let people know that's how more people get a chance to enjoy the content as well. And remember, every Friday at 11 a.m., our new show with Anthony Scaramucci, Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. If you've got questions for him, that's a live call-in show or email submissions. There's a lot of ways to get questions asked. Wealthion.com forward slash ask Anthony. Also at wealthion.com, if you need to talk to an investment professional, you can't figure out what to do with your finances. You heard a lot of things today that make you uncertain. It's free, quick form, no commitment. These are investment professionals that we endorse. It's a free public service. You can just talk with them, have a conversation, see if they're right for you. So thanks again for watching. I'm Eric Chummy. We'll see you next time here on Wealthy On.